1: In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Brian over there, there's Jerry out there, our ethereal ephemeral producer, and this is Stuff You Should Know, which um, for this edition, I feel like we should be playing like harpsichord or something like that in the background when we start. You want to do that? Should we gussy it up a little? Yeah, Jerry knows what she's, (laughs) she knows her way around an old harpsichord, so maybe maybe she can do that for us. I wonder if we have a
1: uh, message break stinger that's harpsichord.
0: Oh, that's a great question, because we've been getting, I mean, we've gotten great ones all along, but some sometimes they're just showing up, I'm like, where did this come from? I don't even recognize this one. It's great stuff.
1: Yeah, and to, you know, for those of you that don't know, those are made by listeners.
0: Yeah, submitted out of the goodness of their hearts yeah, for... Always happen. Yep, to say, here you go, guys, I hope you enjoy it. You can use it all you want. It's very sweet of it everybody. It is. So we're talking about the printing press, and um, we're talking about the invention of the printing press, and. The printing press itself is basically synonymous with a man named uh, Johann Gutenberg. Johannes? How would you say Right out of the gate, man. <laughs> I'm going with uh, Johann Gutenberg, or as uh, the rest of us in the world call him, Gutenberg. Sure. Let's
1: call him Steve Gutenberg.
0: Gut Buck. <laughs> okay? Okay. So, um, Gutenberg is traditionally credited with inventing the printing press. And for all intents and purposes, he did invent the printing press. But um as our friend Ed Grabanowski goes to great pains to point out, uh he did not invent it out of whole cloth, as apparently some people believe, that that it was just a pile of lumber and an idea for him right. that he yeah, exactly. that he put together. <laughs> like every inventor who ever invented anything, he he built on different concepts that had been worked out over centuries. Um, The thing is, is, like, that's not to detract from his accomplishment or anything like that. Like, what he did literally changed the world, as we'll see, in some amazing ways. But he, he helped provide the first information age and got really kind of screwed over in the bargain. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a familiar story at this point, right? Sadly, yes, man. And I'm kind of sick of that. I wish of which one, would...
1: of stealing, of building on others or of oh, no, no, dying, no. Oh. dying a pauper?
0: <laughs> yeah, the second one. No, I understand building on the work of others. That's the other thing, too, is I don't think Gutenberg ever said, like, no, I invented all of this without any help. We don't have any indication he was like that at all. It just kind of got hung on him over the years by sixth graders.
1: We built on the work of
0: Adam Curry. We did. <laughs> right? He's still at it. Did you know that? He's still podcasting? I'm almost a million percent sure. Which yeah. is really sure. And did he really have the first one? I don't know if he had the first, but he's credited with having the first. Very interesting. He's definitely still active on social media for sure. So,
1: if, for the printing press, if, if we jump back in the old Wayback Machine mm-hmm. and we, we breeze past Adam Curry there
0: Hi, Adam. Hey Adam. Oh, look at his <laughs> hair just waving that very breeze. Very nice.
1: Uh we would go back and see people carving up these uh things in, into wood. Huh. and then they would um it's sort of like a, a stamp you would get for a kid these days. Or if you, you know, you go to a stamp shop and you want to get a stamp with your address or whatever.
0: For an adult?
1: Yeah, like we got a stamp made. Uh, Emily got a stamp made of our house when we finally finished renovating her house. Cute. Which We've never used
0: <laughs> our our, our friend, so that you haven't used. So is it a picture of your your house?
1: Yeah, it's like it, okay, I mean, it looks like a little woodcut, but it's not like we send people letters and stamp that oh, or anything. man, I got to tell you. We just you, sort of have one.
0: <laughs> I would like to see that on a Christmas card envelope, you know?
1: You know what she did give me, and boy, I'm going to use it one day, is uh, you know how they would melt wax and seal the envelope with a little stamp? Yes. She got me one of those little kits for Christmas a couple of years Very ago. Very nice.
0: And yep. you still haven't used it? Now You know what? I'm going to write you
1: a letter on some vellum. Thank you. I'm going to stamp my house on it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to wax seal it and, uh, with, and uh, then put on some red lipstick.
0: Uh huh, and then tinkle on the whole thing. <laughs> Give it a kiss and then pee on it. <laughs> uh, we we have a stamp too, but it, it's um it has a our address stamped on. Our friends Laurel and Braden gave it to us. Yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense. Right, and we have used that one before, but I sure. want to see this stamp, this whole Christmas card with tinkle on it and vellum and wax. I can't right. wait to see it. All right, it's gonna happen. Okay,
1: so uh, it, a woodcut and a long way of saying it looks sort of like one of these stamps. It's cut out. Um, Out of a wood block, and then you take paper or vellum or something Mm -hmm. or whatever you want to print it on, Mm -hmm. rub it down with some ink, and then press it down. And they had a thing back in the day in Europe in the 1400s called block books. Right that were made from these woodcuts. They were, you know, 10 to 25, 30 pages long. Mm -hmm. And they kind of look like comic books if you look them up. They have a little bit of artwork, a little bit of text.
0: Yeah, medieval comic books.
1: Yeah, it's like comic books without any of the fun because they had some sort of moral message attached to it usually.
0: (laughs) Right. It was like a Jack Schick tract or something.
1: (laughs) But they were a big deal in Europe in the 1400s, and they thought that they invented something. But, of course, the Chinese were like, excuse me. Mm -hmm. We've been doing this stuff for hundreds of years.
0: Yeah, and and I think as far back as 971, no, 868 CE, which is a while ago, more than a 1,000 years, about 1,100 plus, the Diamond Sutra, which was a Buddhist um, text, was the first known printed book. And they printed it like you just described, where each page was a wood carving. In negative, Chuck, in negative.
1: Yeah. So because you if it. you
0: made it in in the positive, when you put the paper on it with the ink, it would be in reverse when you looked at it on the page. So you had to carve each page like that in negative. So it was a really difficult process, but it worked. It was useful. It was a lot easier once you got those blocks carved for a page than it was to transcribe entire books and texts by hand, which is what they'd done up to that point and still continued to do for a very long time.
1: Yeah, so when I saw the Diamond Sutra, Just obviously the word sutra stood out to me because of the Kama Sutra. Sure. And I (laughs) realized, of course, and I didn't even, I realized I didn't even know what that word meant. And this just, Mm. it's a collection of observations, basically.
0: You said, oh, it means cookbook.
1: (laughs) Well, it could be. (laughs) Uh, It's a collection of observations in a book or a pamphlet. And I think we really missed a diamond opportunity for our book title by not calling it like <laughs> yeah. the Stuff You Should Know Sutra.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, hey, if this one if this one goes even passingly well or sells passingly well, we'll probably have a second chance.
1: You can pre-order that thing, by the way.
0: The, the Stuff You Should Know Sutra? No,
1: boy, you could pre-pre-order that one. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm getting limber as we speak to try and get that one done.
0: Right, yeah, you can pre-order our book, an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting stuff.
1: Sutra. Things. It should have just had comma. Kama Sutra,
0: get it? Right, yep. (laughs) I like that.
1: So that was one in 868 CE, like you said. Then in 971 BCE, there was another one called, did you mention that one, the Tripitaka? Not yet. That was another Buddhist text.
0: That was CE, CE.
1: Oh, it is? Yeah. So they got it wrong here? Yeah. All right.
0: So the whole thing starts about 1,100 years ago.
1: Okay. Well, that makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. But that's the one that had, I think, 130,000 wood uh, block carvings. Yeah.
0: That's insane. That means not only that somebody carved that, but somebody kept that like at their house. Yeah. Imagine living around 130,000 wood block carvings and you would be like, I need to reprint page 832. And then having to go find the wood block carving for page 832 and just, it just sounds like a nightmare. I'd be like, "I I don't care about reading or literacy or moving humanity forward at this point.
1: Maybe it was the house. Mm-hmm.
0: You just blew my mind <laughs> right out of the top of my head. So uh, there
1: was some more experimentation going on after this in China and Korea, um, and some big. And they were using like little wood or ceramic or metal blocks to mm-hmm. make individual characters for the first time. And this was a big kind of push forward toward what we all know as uh, what would eventually be the Gutenberg press: is individual letters or in their case characters instead of just doing each page as a separate woodcut.
0: Yeah, what's awesome is there's a commoner in China named Bi Sheng who um, is thought to have come up with movable type where rather than, you know, carving a woodblock for each page, you have letters, individual letters carved out, and you can arrange them just so any way you want. And then once you print that page, you can arrange them in a different way to print the next page. And that is a huge innovation for sure. And, again, note that this guy came up with this in about 1041 CE, so a good 400 years before Gutenberg was working. Why does Ed keep saying BCE? I don't know. I think he really <laughs> likes the sound of it. All right. Fair enough. It's definitely CE, though. Uh,
1: no, I'm not doubting that. I'm just... Uh...
0: I was thinking, too. I was like, gosh, what if he was right? What if all this had started a good thousand years earlier? Yeah. Like, how much further along would we be right now? As a, if as this a world? Happened? As humanity? Yeah, if this had happened 3,000 years ago rather than 1,000 years ago.
1: Yeah, because here's the little spoiler. Printing books is uh, a big deal. Yeah. Like some say that religion and democracy and I mean just sort of the advancement of humanity was was this it was key to advancing all those things.
0: Mm-hmm. You so, know who says that? Us. People who are right. <laughs> us. Yeah, I definitely am on board with that. Cause, yeah, the for the best way you can put it, it was the first information age that got yeah. launched by Gutenberg by Gutbuck. So <laughs> that's I keep saying that cuz that's Steve Gutenberg's handle on Twitter. Oh, is it really? Okay. Steve Gutbuck. Is it really? Mm-hmm. He is the nicest guy too. Do you follow I, I him? haven't uh yeah, I haven't I haven't checked in on his feed for a very long time, but um years back he used to be like all up in our feed and um he was just so nice. Happy Friday, everybody, kind of stuff, like every Friday. Uh-huh. Just a super nice guy. So I'm assuming nothing's gone horribly wrong with him and that he's still just as nice as he was a few years ago.
1: Well, I highly recommend. You know, I've always um, promoted the, the great, great stars TV show Party Down, one of my favorite shows of all time. Oh, yeah. And Goots has a great, great, great episode. And it seems like that's who he is, and he's a super nice guy in that episode Mm -hmm. because he he, – you know, it's about a a catering company. There were a bunch of, like, writers and actors and stuff doing catering work. Mm -hmm. And he hires them to come over to his house for his birthday. They're there at the house when he pulls in, and he's like, oh, man, we ended up having a surprise party for me, and I forgot. So he's just like, why don't you guys just come in, and we'll be the party. Right. (laughs) But you really get the idea that that's who Goots is as a person.
0: You know what's great is you've definitely, definitely told that story before on the podcast, which means like we've gotten to this point where we're <laughs> amassing like we're building a, a, a standalone universe where we are. like when Steve Gutenberg appears, twice. this story <laughs> pops up as well around him. You know what I'm saying? Like Oh, I knew I told it. I couldn't remember when though. What when would he have come up? I don't remember, but I'm sure we talked also about what a great guy he is on Twitter and all sorts of stuff. I know. Like like we have a a character, like a simulacrum. Of or simulacra of Steve Gutenberg that lives in our podcast oh, universe, and I he's very it. less multifaceted than I'm sure he is in real life. But in our <laughs> universe, this nice guy on Twitter had a great episode <laughs> of Party Down. That's all you need to know about Steve Gutenberg.
1: I know we haven't even gotten into police academy. Do, do, I we, know. do we do a show on police academies? That probably would have made sense.
0: I don't think we have. If we have,
1: I must have been blacked out or something. <laughs> All right. So printing press is advancing forward. Uh, go to Korea in 1234, mm-hmm. and you're going to find a man named Cho yun mm-hmm. who nice. was commissioned to do uh, some more Buddhist texts. A lot of this was Buddhist texts.
0: Well, yeah. If you'll notice, religious texts help push sure. this whole thing forward from different religions even.
1: Yeah, like that Bible that Gutenberg would make.
0: Just don't spoil. <laughs> Sorry.
1: So this one was really, really long, and he was using this movable print that uh, had already been around. But this time he was making these letters for metal, mm-hmm. um, kind of using what the technique they did for coin minting, which had been going on for a while, mm-hmm. set them in a frame, lined them all up, coated them with ink and pressed them. <laughs> and if you think, hey, that sounds like a printing press, you would be exactly right.
0: You're right, fella, for sure. That's that's basically what Gutenberg came up with. He had a couple extra innovations for sure that are definitely credited to him directly. But that general idea had been around for a couple hundred years at least before he started printing his own stuff using this machine of his invention. Now, again, this is not detract at all from Gutenberg. He put together a lot of disparate ideas. And there's also a lot of debate whether he would have known about the um, Korean or Chinese advancements in printing. Um, If so, maybe it was the Mongols that spread it Uh, West, but they're not entirely certain. There's no smoking gun. So it's possible he also thought of it himself just by being involved in it and thinking about it. Or maybe he heard about some other stuff and refined it into his own thing. Regardless, he came up with the printing press and the the Chinese and the Koreans are are not credited with that for actually a couple of reasons. And the upshot of all of it is is that it didn't ever really take off in China or Korea. Um, Even though it was invented there, it didn't become widespread or wide Used and it certainly didn't create an information age revolution.
1: Well, how's this for a cliffhanger? We'll take a little break and we'll tell you a couple more reasons why it never took off in Asia right after this.
0: Listen to this it's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same-day appointments, and if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24-7 virtual care.
1: Yeah, you know, imagine you're feeling so sick that even the thought of getting out of bed is just too much for you. With Amazon One Medical, you don't have to leave the house. Of course, what good is that if you then have to drag yourself to the pharmacy, but you don't have to do that either because of Amazon Pharmacy.
0: It makes a lot of sense. Delivering things fast is what Amazon is known for, and that's exactly what they do here. They'll deliver your prescriptions directly to your door. No waiting in pharmacy lines with people who probably all have something worse than whatever you're there for.
1: Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful.
0: showcased site
1: so just go to squarespace.com slash stuff and you're gonna get a free trial and when you're ready to launch use our offer code stuff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain
0: All right, Chuck, I can't take this any longer. Tell (laughs) us, tell us why it never took off in Asia. Well,
1: some some reasons that just make a lot of sense. Um, Mm -hmm. They are, uh, they have very complex characters uh, with their language. And they have, you know, up to tens of thousands of characters with different pronunciations, different Mm -hmm. phonemes, different syllables. And you can't, you just can't do it. You can't have that many Little tiny blocks, much less multiples of those if you want to print a page. Right. You know, because it's not like you can move them around. And then keeping up with all these was literally one of the big problems. Like they made these big – I think there was a man named Wayne, uh, Wang Zen who used these revolving tables to access these big racks of letters. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of like what you were talking about with the house made of wood blocks, Exactly of one hundred and thirty like thousand woodcuts, right? It's like you you just can't keep up with that many, so just, it wasn't practical. And right. then Gutenberg comes along. He's like, "We only have twenty six letters, yeah. So this is pretty this is pretty dumbed down as the language goes."
0: Yeah, because I mean, even if you do, you know, capitals and lowercase. That's still just, what, 52? Yeah, throw in some punctuation. Yeah, some punctuation, make some doubles, because, you know, you're going to use E a lot more times than one per page. So you need to make some backup copies of them. How many but did he? He is, made
1: about 300 in the end, right?
0: That's what I saw, yeah. 300 um, different uh, character spaces punctuation, um, uppercase, lowercase. And that that's all he needed. So yeah. th- 300 versus tens of thousands. Um Number one, it's just easier to make, but number two, it's easier to keep up with, too. So, um, Gutenberg just happened to be working in just the right language for a movable type printing press to really make sense.
1: Should we talk about this guy?
0: Yeah, because I like him. He's, he's, um, he had a bit of a hustle to him. And I like, I know.
1: That. <laughs> and he's also one of history's kind of hard luck guys in a way, even though, I mean, you know, his name is legendary. So, right. you, you can't, put a price on that. I'm sure he would have liked to have put a price on that.
0: So it, I just want to say, from what I saw, it is very much up for debate whether he actually was financially ruined in the end uh, or really? if he was doing fine. Because one thing we got to tell everybody, Chuck, out of the gate is Gutenberg was born at a time where his father was a patrician. He was uh, an aristocrat in um, in Germany, Mainz. Is it Mainz? Mainz. Mainz, Germany. Um So, he was, you know, notable, but this wasn't a time where people of that class, you know, he wasn't like a king or anything like that. So, there was not a lot of documentation of his birth. We're not entirely certain when he was born. His early life has kind of lost the history, too, because he was just kind of a nobody until he invented the printing press. But the thing is, when he invented the printing press— It was so revolutionary and so obvious how revolutionary it was out of the gate that within a decade or two of his death, historians were studying and documenting his life. So there is a surprising amount of stuff that was documented about him that's preserved still. But the stuff that we do have is almost entirely his work and then court records when he was dragged into (laughs) court by creditors and investors.
1: Yeah. So you said he had a little bit of a hustle um, I, I think uh, Ed says they referred to him charitably as having entrepreneurial flair. It's <laughs> another word of saying he had a bit of a hustle to him, and he would get in. He was always trying to make a buck, always had some sort of scheme in the works, yeah. and which means he had investors a lot of times, and a lot of times he might not come through. So as a result, he was taken to court a lot, like you said, and it's kind of funny to build this guy's life out of court records but we are able to construct a little bit of it because mm-hmm. of him being hauled in there and being sued time and time again.
0: And most notably, we're able to kind of piece together the printing press that he invented, what he invented, what he knew when from these court records. Because all of these um, these lawsuits, basically, were over his work. They were between investors in his work and him. And the thing is, is like I don't have the impression that he was – a hustler in the sense that he was a con man or a shark or anything like that. He he had very high aspirations. He also had the smarts to figure out how to achieve these aspirations. He just didn't have the money to achieve these aspirations, so he needed outside help. His big problem, as far as investors go from what I can tell, is that he was a perfectionist. So rather than just figure out how to invent the movable type printing press, which he did, he also tried to figure out one that could also print in red on a different set or using copper engraving to create um, different types of, of type. Some stuff that like details that were like, kind of unnecessary, but made this, transform this thing from, you know, an amazing piece of work to a masterpiece. And the time it took to be that much of a perfectionist it made him run into uh, creditors and, and investors that were not that patient. Yeah.
1: And his first sort of tinkering with pressing anything, uh, it seems because of, again, a lawsuit mm-hmm. was in uh, Strasbourg when he lived there in around 1438, is that C-E?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he would uh, – he had this plan to produce these trinkets for people going on religious pilgrimage. Yeah. Is. <laughs> right. <laughs> More than right. one. Yeah. So and, he had these tools that he could stamp out these trinkets and press these things. And so he, he sort of had an idea at least of how this kind of technology worked as far as cutting something, stamping, and pressing it.
0: And there's some indication, Chuck, that he was already figuring out the rough contours, if not more detail than that, of his printing press in Strasbourg. Because that first court case um, was by the family of some creditors who, who took him to court because they wanted in on some secret work he was keeping from them um, <clears throat> and being investors in him. They were saying, well, you know, if you're doing work on the side, we should have a piece of that too. And that's where some historians are like, this, actually what they're describing here is part of the printing press. Yeah, it's because it's it up was, for debate still. Though. Well, I mean, it was
1: 10 years later. That was in around 1438. And uh, by the time he got back to Mainz in 1448, he borrowed some money from his cousin to, <laughs> to do like a real printing business. So it's, I mean, I think you could be right. It's very likely those people knew that he was in the back room with his plan to print books, right? and they wanted some of that action.
0: Right, but he's like, no, dude, you, you, you invested want on the ground floor of <laughs> <Yeah>. the trinket <laughs> business. This is a whole different uh-huh. world-changing business. You're going to have to cough up some more dough. And they said, nine.
1: Yeah, they did say nine. And he said, uh, all right, well, I'm going to invent this thing, or I'm going to cobble together a bunch of other people's work. In a way that makes sense, that you can, you know, make massive amounts of books right. that look good and that you can sell and make money on. And the Bible was uh, a pretty obvious choice for the first big, big project. Mm-hmm. But he was like, the Bible is a lot to undertake. Um, and if you've ever seen a Gutenberg Bible, they're they're huge. They're not uh, –
0: There's two volumes.
1: Yeah, there's not like these little handheld Bibles. They're very large. And I didn't get an exact measurement, but you can see when someone holds it, it's a big, big book. It's like a we'll big say, fat coffee table book.
0: Let's say a, a eleven by eighteen.
1: Mm, they seem a little wider than that, but a
0: thirty-six by ninety-nine. <laughs> <laughs> That's as high as I'm going.
1: So he said uh, one dollar. He said that I'm gonna I'm gonna not start with the Bible. Too much to bite off. Yeah, it's a little dull. Um, so I'm gonna start out with some other stuff. I'm gonna print some. Um, some pamphlets, I'm going to see if I can sell these things, I'm going to see how good they look. And uh, he did. He printed a grammar book, um, mm-hmm. was one of the first things. This is from another lawsuit, uh, by uh, a Roman writer. And it was a popular book, which was, again, it's a smart thing that he did, is is basically taking like what would be a bestseller at the time and seeing if he could mass produce it instead of a uh, block book as a regular printed book.
0: Right. So he was also doing broadsheets, which are kind of like early newspapers, which they had a pretty, we should do one on newspapers, because the early life oh, of totally. newspapers were these broadsheets and sailors would buy them, read them, and then take them into town at the next port. And they would be sold to those people who who most people weren't literate at the time. So they would hire somebody who could read in town to read the news out at like the local tavern or something.
1: And we both have experience with newspapers.
0: Sure, man. Um, I would like to do newspapers one day. Let's do it.
1: I would totally. That sounds like a two-parter to me.
0: Okay. So, um, he he basically, the upshot of all this, and I think that's the second time I've said that. I never say that. Um, I always want to, like, deliberately make everything much slower than that. The upshot of something, like, it. You say upshot all the time. It. Do I? Yeah. Just like, you say it as much as we talk about Gutenberg and Party Down. You know what's sad? I'm an unreliable narrator <laughs> in my own life. Oh, man. What a great quote. So, um, the, the overall general point of what we've been saying <laughs> no, up to this moment <laughs> is that he kind of broke his teeth on some slightly easier projects to kind of figure out the ins and outs yeah. and everything. And then when he was finally ready to do the Bible, he apparently was well aware that this was going to be a masterpiece. Oh, yeah. He had figured it out and he was ready to bite it off. And he started work on the Gutenberg Bible, <laughs> also known as the Gutenberg Bible, <laughs> and uh, also known as the 42-line Bible because that's how many lines oh, really? he had per page. Okay. Um, and even at 42 lines per page, which was uh, more lines because he lowered the space in between lines to fit more lines per page, it was still something like 1,286 pages. Yeah. Um, over two volumes—that's a lot. But the, the the kind of bear that in mind. What we're talking about when we talk about this project eventually is that he was creating twelve hundred and eighty-six page Bibles. Okay,
1: yeah, one at a time. Yeah, one page at a time. That is. So, which we'll figure in here in a second. So he starts to work. He knows that. He, I mean, before he starts, he knows that he's going to be able to charge a lot for these things. And he knows he's going to need to crank them out um, as quickly as he can. So he's going to need more space. He's going to need more presses. He's going to need a lot of ink and and other little doodads and spawn divots that it takes to make one of these. Mm-hmm. And he's going to need people. You know, he's going to need some assistance. He can't do it all by himself. Mm-hmm. Because here's where that comes back. You you can only. It's not like he would print out a Bible and he's like, I got one. Go sell this thing, mm-hmm. and we can continue to fund our little project here. You got to print out one page at a time uh, over and over and over and over, and then print out page two over and over and over, or two and whatever the reverse side is, Mm -hmm. and uh, eventually you're going to be able to start putting them together in bound form, and only then can you start actually making money.
0: Right, right. So he, he was also, that was another thing that he doesn't get credited for enough, I think, is that he figured out, like, how to... Um, do a rough primitive version of an assembly line, basically. That sure. He was he was mass producing these books out of the gate. That was the point. You you're mass producing it, not doing it one page at a time, like you were saying, like the old block books used to be.
1: Right. So he gets uh, four presses going at a time. Uh, later, went up to I think six. And because of all this upfront money that he needs to keep this going until he can sell them mm-hmm. and turn a profit, was uh, he needed? Like always, he needed some dough. He he wasn't just he didn't have his pockets lined with money, so he had to go to a guy, and this uh, this guy's name was
0: Johann Fust. Mm-hmm. And and he because he had calculated he would need about two years, and because before he could start selling. Yeah, the yeah. whole project he figured out was going to be about two years. This this print run of Bibles is going to take him two years to do, so he needed to be able to pay everybody. He needed money for all the supplies, all the materials. He needed to be able to survive for two years because he would not be able to sell one single Bible until all of them were done. None of them were going to be done until all of them were done. That's just the way the process worked out.
1: Right. So, Fust, I think, saw the writing on the wall, knew it was going to be... Expensive, uh, but mm-hmm. knew that he was going to probably be able to make a lot of money. And who knows? I don't know this Foos guy from Adam, but maybe in the back of his head, he also thought, you know what? I might also be able to just sue this guy at some point and take control of these printing presses because this guy didn't have a pot to urinate in <laughs> and he's not going to have any money. So, and that's exactly what happened. He ended up, um, having no assets other than these presses, and when he got sued and lost, and I don't even know what he got sued for. Was it for taking
0: too long? Yes. Really? Yes, that makes the whole thing that much worse, that he was sued basically, like I was saying, for being a perfectionist. Wow. And technically, Gutenberg could have gotten the Bible out before Fust sued him. Um, like but a, again, like a dumbed was, down version. He was yeah, just a slightly less masterful version right. that would have just knocked everyone's socks off. Sure. Had just the same amount of an impact on the world. Mm-hmm. I don't think the world would have been changed really any um, had he had he gotten him out in a time when Foost was was willing to not sue him. But he he wasn't prepared to do that he was he was a, an artist he was an artiste he had the soul of an artiste so he just kept going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole to try to make this thing more and more perfect and elaborate and foost said enough and the court actually sided with foost so foost lent him 800 gulden or golden um, which at the time was about the the price of um, that's a lot of money eight houses yeah that's what we're going with we'll see in a second it'll make sense but let's say eight <laughs> average cost houses. Um, that's how much he lent him. Then he did it again. He lent him another 800 golden. And so he was into him for 1,600 golden. Would have easily been able to pay that back. When Fust, Fust, uh sued him, the court said, not only do you owe him 1,600 golden, you owe him in interest, we're going to say too. Get this, about 2,020 golden is what he ended up having to pay Foust. Now,
1: did he sue him because... Uh, he was that far over schedule.
0: The only because he told that him I've it seen. would take two years,
1: did it take right. like six or
0: something? I saw that from the court records, they believe that he was done by 1455, and I believe he started in 1453, so he was probably right on schedule. I have the impression that Foost was a bit of an impatient jerkwad,
1: well, and also get the feeling that uh, that Gutenberg probably didn't dot his eyes and cross his T's contractually
0: maybe not maybe not I could see that too because you got to
1: bake in a little bit of uh, over overtime there you know
0: for sure but i I think I think he may have been roughly on schedule because hmm. because by fourteen fifty two he had created the Bible. And here's the other thing. Here's the other reason why Foos suing him was a bit of a screw job or a huge screw job. Um, and by screw job, I mean like the, the act of a screwdriver screwing a screw <laughs> into a, a slab of wood that the screw doesn't want to go into that wood. It wants uh-huh. to stay free. Exactly. Like that kind of thing, yeah, right? Yeah, kids. So um, the, the, the reason why, why, why it really stunk that foos sued him is because he got the Bibles done. The Bible, the Bible run was completed, and Foose still sued him and still won. Um, if I had been Foose and in the investor, I would have been like, okay, fine, you finished. Um, maybe pay me more or something like that, but that was not the case.
1: Yeah, and who knows what's going on back then. He could have bribed a judge who got a piece of the action, you know?
0: Right, exactly.
1: I mean, that's speculation, but I'm just saying— it's not like today when our court system is just so perfect in every way
0: <laughs> right flawless run <laughs> exclusively by artificial intelligence
1: so um ed was kind enough to cobble together a few just sort of fun facts about that bible run mm-hmm. uh he printed 180 of these things initially sold all of them of course mm-hmm. uh today there are 49 of them still around which um ed points out and and i agree is a really great um survival percentage for something that old, yeah, um, forty nine out of one hundred and eighty, and that just sort of pinpoints, um, or or just puts a point in the fact that puts a pin in. What am I trying to say? Really drives home
0: <laughs> sure, there you go.
1: the fact that these things were very cherished and taken care of. From the beginning, um, I went to see how much you could buy one of these for.
0: Oh yeah, what'd you find? Well,
1: eighty-seven was the last one I saw at auction. Um, there yeah. may be one since then, but in nineteen eighty-seven, it, it went for five point four million.
0: So that was one one volume. A complete set hasn't been auctioned since nineteen seventy-eight. Oh and that really? Went for two point two million in nineteen seventy-eight dollars. Wow. From what I saw, if you, so you were to— get half going a Bible,
1: to, you get the New Old Testament only,
0: or something. If you're lucky. But if the complete copy, they think would be um, thirty-five million today. And to the, yeah, if makes, it went to auction, that makes sense. That's about right. But so, so he made two. He made two versions. He made one like a, a regular version on paper, and it sold for twenty golden. And he made a vellum one on calfskin for 50 golden. For, yeah. He made 45 of those. So uh, allow me to figure these calculations real quick, okay?
1: Oh boy, here we go. Math, so
0: remember, math time with Josh. <laughs> I'm going to get this right. Chuck. All right. Uh-huh. So there's this uh, historian named Andrew Pedigree who says that a house in Mainz, Mainz, would have cost up to 100 golden a house. So. The total that he could have made selling this is these Bibles, this 180 print run of Bibles is 4950 golden. That's a lot of houses. It is. Let's say at 100 golden a piece, that's 49 and a half houses. Don't ask about the half of a house. But let's say in today's dollars that we're saying that a house is $200,000 per house. Uh Okay. Yeah. So (laughs) $200,000 times 49 and a half houses Uh means that he made off of these 180 Bibles almost 10. Million dollars. Oh, I can't wait for the correction. It's right, dude. <laughs> I, I am definitely right. And so here's the other thing too. So um, when Fust sues him and gets that twenty, or like two, gets a, that that um, judgment of two thousand golden against him. Um, a lot of people say, well, that ruined uh, Gutenberg and uh, he died a pauper. If that Bible run sold out, he still would have had more than half of that nearly $10 million yeah. left over after paying Foost. So it's very much unclear that that he was a pauper or not. The 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 overall point of what I've been saying up to this moment is this. The upshot? <laughs> <laughs> it's that um, that was the word you could have used earlier, too. When you were looking for a word, uh-huh. upshot, would it work? Oh yeah, you're right. I wasn't going to encourage the use of that though, but the the uh, the <laughs> the upshot of is that Fust got his hands on Gutenberg's printing press right right after that that run of Bibles was made,
1: or his six printing presses rather.
0: Yeah, and know- his and his uh, printing assistant, um, who was actually Fust's son-in-law. Uh, the, he got the whole the whole shebang, all of his plates, everything.
1: You know what my favorite thing about your math stuff is? What? I know the second that you start that there are thousands of people, math <laughs> math busters, if you will, <laughs> okay. that just immediately get out their pencil and pad and to, awesome. to see if they can prove you wrong.
0: <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> it's like a I'm game. fine with that. Yeah, it is a game, and I always win.
1: All right, so we're going to take another break. Okay. We're going to tally up your math uh, wins and losses. All right. And we're going to talk about how this thing actually worked right after this.
0: Listen to this it's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same-day appointments, and if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24-7 virtual care.
1: Yeah, you know, imagine you're feeling so sick that even the thought of getting out of bed is just too much for you. With Amazon One Medical, you don't have to leave the house. Of course, what good is that if you then have to drag yourself to the pharmacy, but you don't have to do that either because of Amazon Pharmacy.
0: It makes a lot of sense. Delivering things fast is what Amazon is known for, and that's exactly what they do here. They'll deliver your prescriptions directly to your door. No waiting in pharmacy lines with people who probably all have something worse than whatever you're there for.
1: Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Summer is the perfect time for gathering with friends and family in the backyard to enjoy premium cuts of meat, fresh, seasonal
0: produce and more. And of course, we're talking about Whole Foods Market. And speaking of that meat, you can fire up the grill with premium cuts of meat like no antibiotics ever beef New York strip steak and beautifully marbled boneless beef ribeye steak. Your grill will thank you. And you can also grab-and-go.
1: Whole Foods Market has grab-and-go favorites like packaged salads, appetizers, and sides. They're really perfect for bringing to any kind of potluck barbecue.
0: Yes, plus, don't forget dessert. Every gathering needs dessert. You can dig into limited-time seasonal pies from their experts in the bakery.
1: Or how about some adult beverages? You can always fill up that cooler with some summer beers, seltzers, sparkling wine, canned wines, and more. Must be 21+, plus, of course, and please drink responsibly.
0: So make Whole Foods Market your summer grilling destination. Stuffy You should know is brought to you by our friends at Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, where trailblazing runs in the family.
1: That's right. From introducing a generation to the glory of hops with their iconic pale ale to taking hazy IPAs nationwide with Hazy Little Thing, one of my favorite beers, it's an adventurous spirit that you can taste in every sip.
0: Yeah. What started in a homebrew shop is now one of America's top craft breweries, known for leading the industry in sustainability. And Sierra Nevada is still family-owned, with a passion for innovation and doing things right.
1: So find your next favorite beer wherever fine beverages are sold, from the original and always boldly hoppy pale ale to the juicy, fruit-forward, hazy little thing. With new brews for every season, there's always something to discover.
0: Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. Visit SierraNevada.com today to taste the difference. Ready, set, griddle this grilling season. Get the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle with a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box.
1: With no use of coatings, you can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Everything rusts and nobody talks about it because they couldn't fix it until now. With Weber's new rust-resistance technology, your Weber will last for years.
0: Yeah, when used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, which reduces the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. Plus, the griddle heats evenly edge-to-edge reaching all the way up to 500 degrees.
1: That's right. And with the Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. So get fired up for your new Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle.
0: So I think we came up, Chuck, with the mm-hmm. um, – that the I've won every math contest right. I've, I've in, initiated.
1: Every one. Okay. All right. So shall we talk about the Gutenberg Press? Yes. Well, you got your individual letters.
0: Okay. All right. So uh,
1: If let's... you're going to – we said he ended up making 300 of these things. So you're going to need all these little indi- individual letters carved. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're carved into steel. Using these little files, mm-hmm. and these are the master letters, and then they punch those into soft metal, um most likely copper, and right. then the impression in the copper is formed uh, into a mold, and then you're gonna pour molten metal and What I saw was that one thing that Gutenberg definitely invented was this right. hand casting instrument uh-huh. where they actually uh where you would actually pour this this molten metal, I think you use lead tin and uh antimony whatever that is. That
0: was an alloy that he invented even. Like, add that to his list.
1: Yeah, so he invented some stuff, but this is how you would actually make the individual letters was by uh, this early process.
0: Right, so the one thing that's still up for debate supposedly is whether he invented or used that punch matrix thing where you punch the letter yeah. into a softer metal. It's They're not entirely certain, but yes, he definitely was casting letters with alloy of his own making. Um, and apparently it cooled, like, the moment, like, you just, poured it in, closed the mold and opened it and it would be cool enough to dump out on the table and start filing down because that was the other thing too you had to file down every sure. letter to make sure that they were uniform yeah. and he even went this is an example of how how um how detailed he got he even was like oh well this this f has a lot of space between you know on either side of it so he filed down the sides of all the f's after testing it a few times to make basically kerning he was he was He figured out kerning right out of the gate. Um, The first time anyone had ever really created the printing press, there was also kerning. Which is awesome. Which is the the spacing between letters. Like, if you've ever seen a bunch of letters strung far apart, it looks really weird. Yeah. Kerning is— Not a fan of that. that's That's a high kerning value. Low kerning value is where they're tighter together, which is what you want.
1: Yeah, so the the long and short of his uh, this of these little blocks, though, is that you only needed to carve each one one time. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to pour a bunch of molds if you wanted a bunch of E's or A's right. or other vowels and stuff. But that was nothing, but yeah, that was nothing. You only had to do that carving once. File these things down until they're all uniform, and then it moves on to uh, someone known as the compositor.
0: Yes, the compositor. Not to be confused with the eradicator, right? <laughs> from Kids in the Hall, um, the compositor was the person who sat there with like the manuscript, right, and read each line. And as they were reading each line, they were gathering the letters they needed and putting putting the letters together in like a like a handheld little rack um, to basically make each line. And they would slide each line into a frame um, called the form. Um, and you would do that just line by line until the whole form, the whole frame is filled up with the lines that you're going to print a page with.
1: Yeah, basically what they did in Korea 200 years earlier.
0: Except with far fewer characters.
1: Yeah, and you get the the idea that if you were a compositor working for, uh, for Gutenberg, the perfectionist, mm-hmm. it was a, probably a pretty nervy job uh, because you're reading that manuscript – any misspelling, any any misuse of punctuation, uh that would have I'm sure there would have been heck to pay from Herr Gutenberg. So mm-hmm. I, I imagine that job was just sort of um high high tension.
0: And Gutenberg very famously was super passive aggressive in his managerial style. <laughs> <Was> so he? <laughs> he would just kinda wander around the shop with his coffee and say, Oh, you're gonna yeah, print it that way, huh? <laughs> I'm gonna need you to work Sunday as well. Yeah. Yeah, and nice. it was it was like you would try to avoid him or whatever, but he had the sixth sense to like pop up exactly right as you were trying to leave for the day.
1: Right, and you would and he would uh, ask about your stapler, mm-hmm. and he would say, "This is my this is my red stapler that I well I that, keep yeah in my that day. was
0: that was one of the uh, press the press men,
1: right? That just
0: kind of kept in the basement. It was a weird time. For uh, printing,
1: it was uh, another weird time. Is going to be right now when I ask you if you understand this gobbledygook about folios.
0: Yeah. So what they because it's a little confusing was, to me. Right. So it's way easier to print. Yes, a logistical nightmare is another way to put it. Yeah. But if you take, um, you know, one large page that's actually two pages of a book wide, and fold it. You have a folio, sure, and supposedly Gutenberg printed these things in folios of five, so that each each little, I guess, thing that they did was was um, was t- like twenty pages. They would do twenty pages at a time. For remember, something like twelve hundred and eighty-six pages they were doing this mm-hmm. total per Bible. Um, and and I mean that was that the key was this I I no to answer your question no I didn't fully understand the folios I think there was a, a lot made of folios when there didn't necessarily need to be a lot made of folios the point was that when you printed this stuff this was very very tricky you had to dampen the paper oh okay because if you didn't did you like that we're yeah. leaping ahead. <laughs> Um, Just got to breeze you, right on by that. Yeah, when when you print um, on paper using the kind of ink that he he created, another thing he created, which we'll talk about, um, the paper can stick very easily unless you dampen the paper. The problem is, is you got to print on the back side too, but you can't dampen the paper again, my friend, or else you're going to smear the ink on the other side, or it's going to run, or whatever. So they would print, they would dampen the paper, print one side, and then have to print the other side like, after the ink on the one side was dried, but before the paper had dried fully. Right. Which is, that's got to be tricky. You talk about nerviness and, and high stress. I mean, especially when you're on, like, a if it's 180 Bibles and a $10 million project, I mean, each page is rather expensive and valuable, so you don't want to screw up any of them, you know? So, if you want to look at a press, uh,
1: again, I would go to YouTube and see the video of it actually being done, but the press has two sections. You've got this frame uh, that allows the plates and the paper to align themselves, Mm -hmm. um, the carriage, and then the actual press part of the press, Mm -hmm. and you set these plates onto the carriage, and they're facing up, and then you apply ink using these uh and when you see it on the video it, it kind of looks like kind of looks like these big giant gourds they're they have a handle and then this big round sort of uh drumhead looking um body right and you and you stamp you know you roll this thing all around in the ink and then roll them around on each other to make sure that all all the ink is really really even and it's actually goose skin uh these pads are and then you uh, you just go around and stamp these four plates, and you know from the looks of the way this guy did it, it took about maybe a minute and a half to fully ink them for a good page. Mm-hmm. And these things look kind of heavy, you know. He's he's kind of he he doesn't roll them because if you roll them, you end up smearing. Okay. So he's just sort of pounding them on there, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of work. And and all of this looks like a lot of work. Even the pressing part is uh, takes like you know a lot of manual strength.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, again, two years to just print 180 Bibles.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it's a physical workout. Right. Um, He uses this ink you mentioned. uh, It's an oil-based varnish. Previously, for many, many hundreds of years, they used Mm water-based, which is just no good. Water-based ink is is not what you want to do when you're printing a book.
0: No, and that was actually another reason why it didn't catch on. uh, Printing didn't catch on in, in China and Korea, too, is they were using water-based inks exclusively, and it runs, it smears, it doesn't stay in place, it's just a bad jam. And that was another innovation of Gutenberg's, um, which was to to use oil-based ink. There was somebody, I can't remember, we've talked about it in a podcast before, but they were they were talking about how some inventor just knocked something out of the park his first time out, and they said that it was akin to invent like it had the Wright brothers invented their airplane, complete with um, airline miles and uh, food trays that that came down <laughs> off the back of the seat in front of you. It was just like that's this funny. complete thing, and that's that's kind of what Gutenberg did with the printing press. He he solved all the problems all at once in his his. Initial invention, like he figured it all out. And uh, as we'll see, it stayed the same for hundreds of years as a result.
1: Yeah, so to hold the paper in place, because, you know, this frame is upright, and then you end up folding it down. It's Mm -hmm. held in by these pins. These little, look like little nail heads sticking, or not nail heads, but nail pointy parts. Yeah. The opposite of the head.
0: The ouchy part.
1: And that way, when you flip it over, because you're going to have to print that other side, it's exactly in the same spot that it was before. Mm -hmm. Another nice little, very rudimentary... Uh, way of making something perfect. <laughs> right. Uh, and then you mentioned earlier he made certain parts red. this rubrication. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure what he did for the Gutenberg Bible, but in the King James Version, if I'm not mistaken, Jesus's words are all in red. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. If I'm, I think I remember it, that being the case. But I think he just used it here for certain parts and maybe flourishes of art. And there was some hand-drawn art and stuff like that as well.
0: Well, yeah, they went to hand drawn because they they he had so much trouble with the the um, red, um, like going back and printing after the black was printed, printing on the same page with just the red text. It's pretty advanced stuff said, for back then, right? But they said, yeah, we'll just go do the hand lettering like like traditionally is done. Nobody will be mad at us for it, right?
1: Like, what do you call it when the first letter is big? Drop cap. Yeah, drop cap.
0: They did those in red for sure.
1: Yeah, uh, and then you have got your screw uh the screw press he used he kind of ganked from uh wine and grape presses <laughs> and you know once you have this thing inked up you move it over to the press and it's just a big big armed lever it's not like something that moves in a circle right you just kind of pull it really tough uh
0: kind of one or maybe two times and then boom you've got your printed page you do, and, and Ed points out something that I think is overlooked. But, you know, and one of the other problems with Chinese and Korean printing or any kind of printing using, like, wood blocks or something like that is you're going to get uneven pressure. So you're going to get an uneven transfer of yeah. ink. One of the genius things about the press, about it using basically a wine press— for printing is that it applies even slow pressure at you know increasing pressure and then decreasing pressure as you unscrew the screw so the the at the, an,
1: at the same rate like over the whole plate
0: right so there was a nice even amount of pressure that was increasingly introduced and and decreasingly reduced um, that that really kind of made this this beautiful uh, outcome for the on the printed page
1: yeah you get when this guy in this video holds up. The little printed page at the end. There, you know, there's a little moment of ooh and ah going on in that room.
0: <laughs> right. And like a little trickle of blood comes out of his ear as he's just gazing into the camera. Oh man. I was worried about that guy for a minute. I gotta go see that. Yeah, you should check him out. So um that's I mean, that's the printing press. We I we we should say um after Gutenberg printed those Bibles, Fus got his hands on those presses almost immediately and in very short order. Uh, I think like less than two years, released a Psalter, which is also considered a masterpiece. But Foost put his name on it, even though Gutenberg had basically created the whole thing. He also made a business for himself creating these Bibles using Gutenberg's old plates um, because he got his hands on all those through the court. Foost. Again, Gutenberg was certainly not lost to history. Everybody knew what he did and very quickly, you know, revered him as a, a, a hero extraordinaire. But we were talking about what the the Gutenberg press did for the world. And it's really tough to overstate the impact that it had on things.
1: Yeah. I mean, just think about, like you said, the first information age, getting out information on, on government and politics and democracy and mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just little things like how-tos and, you know, how to to, – there might have been a how-to on how to make those nails that we talked about in the blacksmithing episode. Right. Although I think a lot of that is passed down. But all of a sudden you can get this out en masse and and that's the whole thing. It's like all of a sudden hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people could read information –
0: right and they could learn to read too because books well, yeah. were were now way more affordable than they had been before and actually ironically enough i ran across a history.com article called seven ways the printing press changed the world by our own dave Ruse, oh, and nice. he he went to um he he points out this and i thought this was really important with the printing press, it made it way easier to make way more copies of something than ever before, which also made it harder to stamp out new ideas. Whereas before, if you had some heretic who had this new idea about, you know, the uh, the earth revolving around the sun rather than the other way around— yeah. All you do was kill that person, burn them at the stake, and then burn their copies of their notes along with them, and idea gone, right? Yeah. Now, that person could make a bunch of copies and disseminate them, and so this idea would be out there. You could kill that person, but their idea was going to survive because there were too many copies for you to get your hands on and stamp out. And that led to things like the Enlightenment, like the That's revolution right. in America and in France and the the birth of... Democracy in the West, like like all of this stuff, came from that that ability to disseminate things like never before.
1: It, in the legal system, it allowed judges to throw the book at people. Yeah, before because it was just, just a wood one cut. book.
0: <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't throw that one thing. No, could you really might not get it somebody. back. That's right. So wow, that was a good one. I think on that one, we should end uh, this episode on the Gutenberg printing press, don't you? Yes. Well, since I said don't you, everybody, it's time for listener mail.
1: All right, I'm going to call this Sweepstakes Winner. Nice. This is from Devin Johns. Hey, guys, just listened to the Sweepstakes podcast. I wanted to share one of my wins as a sweeper. In 2016, I saw a sweepstakes from uh, from Interstate Battery and Firestone, where they were giving away two trucks and a bunch of gift cards. All you had to do was get a free battery check at any Firestone and enter with your yes. invoice. Wow. Uh, I thought, I need an oil change, so I might as well get that battery checked and enter. Less than three months later, I was contacted by a third-party company who facilitates the sweepstakes. Uh, almost didn't t- answer. They told me I didn't win. <laughs> and he won a gift card. No, he won a truck. <laughs> he, he won one of those two trucks. Uh, 2017 Chevy Silverado. Wow. And he said, uh, I loved having a truck, but as you guys said, you got to pay taxes on yeah. winnings, which counts as income. So I ended up selling it, buying a nice used car and paying off debt. Uh, I've won a bunch of stuff. And have learned how to spot real and fake giveaways, but they do exist. So keep entering, and that is
0: Devin Johns. And he included a picture of himself with his Lacar. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's great. It looks good still. Oh yeah. Thanks, Devin. Congratulations, and that is a fantastic story. That's a perfect listener mail response to the sweepstakes episode, if you ask me.
1: Yeah, and a, and a smart, uh, responsible thing you did by getting a cheaper thing and then paying off debt. Good yeah. for you.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, if you want us to give you a pat on the head for something you did, email to us. You can send it off to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey friends, when someone says Amazon, do you think healthcare? Well, maybe you should. Amazon One Medical offers same day appointments. And if somehow that's still not convenient enough, they have 24 7 virtual care. Not only that, there's also Amazon Pharmacy. So after your virtual care appointment, Amazon will deliver your prescriptions directly to your door. Now waiting in line with people who are sick with who knows what. It's a new era of healthcare. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful.